In this episode of The Unclaimed, we briefly discuss the pros and cons of providing children with gender and sexuality education and trauma that students may face outside of school. We also have a cynical conversation about grades and academic measurement, and the host would like to disclose that they believe in students focusing on their grades and trying hard in school, but not at the expense of their emotional well-being. Thank you. Welcome to The Unclaimed, a Percy Jackson activism podcast where we connect pop culture, literature, and media with real-world activism, brought to you by Youth Activism Project and Mosaic. So I'm Amina. I'm Anika. And I'm Obsi. And we're so excited for the second, or I guess third episode, sorry, of our podcast, as we're finally getting into the Percy Jackson books, starting with the first four chapters of The Lightning Thing. Anika and Obsi... (laughs) Anika and Opsi, is there anything you guys want to share really briefly before I give a summary on what we read? I'm just really excited to dig in. I've been been waiting for this. Yeah, Yeah. for me, definitely excitement, but I would also say it felt like a homecoming of sorts. It's been about like five years since I read any Percy Jackson book Um, after I entered high school. It's really just been like critical analyses of, you know, all these great texts that as great as they are, aren't necessarily Percy Jackson or you know any other like YA fantasy books so it's nice coming home back to the kid I grew up as. Let's get into our summary. So Percy Jackson he is our main character and also our narrator. He's a 12 year old boy who has been considered a troubled kid throughout most of his life. He has ADHD and dyslexia and he has been raised primarily by his mother with his father being notable notably absent. He explains how he's been kicked out of several schools before due to inexplicable reasons, but has been blamed for it regardless. So in this first chapter, we know that he's a student at Yancey Academy, a rich kid boarding school for troubled kids like himself, and he has only one friend there, his roommate, Grover. Grover is described as basically a constant nervous wreck, and Percy feels like he has to constantly look out for him. He and his classmates are at a field trip at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City with their Latin teacher, Mr. Bruner, a guy in a wheelchair who looks like to be the only adult in Percy's life besides his mom, who seems to like him. At the museum, they look at ancient Greek and Roman art depicting myths, which Percy noticeably has a really good understanding of, and Mr. Bruner makes it a point to him that this information is far more important in his life than he thinks it is. So, yeah, not foreshadowing at all. During their lunch break, Grover gets picked on by one of their classmates, and when Percy gets mad, out of nowhere, a wave of water from a nearby fountain drenches her, and he gets into trouble. His math teacher, Mrs. Dodds, brings him inside the museum and decides to punish him, when she suddenly turns into a monster and starts talking this, like, cryptic nonsense. Before she could do anything to him, Mr. Bruner shows up and throws Percy a sword, which he uses to slice through her, and she disintegrates. The sword somehow turns into a pen in his hand, and Percy is all alone and mad and confused. When he goes back outside, the rest of his classmates and Mr. Bruner have no idea who this Mrs. Dodds is Percy is talking about, and Percy thinks he's tweaking. So that's basically chapter one. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, let's just kind of start on page one. Why are you beating me to it, Anika? (laughs) Well, I just have to say, the minute where he's like, look, I didn't want to be half-blood and goes on this whole thing of like how being half-blood is dangerous. Can we talk about the actives and parallels right then and there? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's exact. That's the main thing I want to talk about. And I love that it was literally the first sentence. Like that's just kind of the call to action where we're like, oh my god, like, you you read this piece of literature or view this piece of media or, like, experience a specific thing and you're like, 
I resonate with this so much that I feel like I need to be a part of this narrative. When he was like, if you feel something stirring inside, like, and he's like, stop reading. Like for everyone listening, don't stop reading. I'm glad no one stops reading. And and I want to broaden, I think one of the things we have to also think about is like activism is not a term that resonates with everybody but leadership is i know a lot of people in this world a lot of young people leadership is something that calls you it is something that makes you feel like something is stirring inside of you and it can be dangerous it really can be dangerous in lots of different ways we can talk about like activism when it comes to like doing protests and safety issues and we talked about you guys doing walkouts and having those safety concerns in our first episode that is definitely one thing um there's also like kind of safer forms of activism which we'll talk more about when we talk about like our mosaic approach and trying to bridge build i would argue that that's like a safer form of activism in a lot of ways but still um or or leadership rather but still like leadership and being a leader and putting yourself out there it requires a lot of bravery and a lot of interpersonal danger like danger to your psychological well-being like to be a leader you're exposed and if you if you feel like if, if if that's something that you feel called to, like we want you to unlike Percy, we want you to lean into it. But we also do want to talk about what those dangers are as well. Just in case for anyone who doesn't think of themselves as a leader, because I do understand even that itself can be a daunting term. I would also just think of that part of a book of chapter one specifically as the concept of stepping up. And, you know, people do this in various ways, such as like stepping up and helping out their family financially by getting an extra job, stepping up by taking care of their sibling while their parents are out more. This really applies to everyone on such a universal level. And I think that's why it's so important to us, especially to highlight even in the sense of advocacy. But then at the same time, I also did want to bring up a quote from Cori Bush that I, when I was reading this part of the book, I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what she captured in her one tweet. So essentially this tweet, it reads, many of us didn't choose to become activists. We were activated. We could not stand to sit on the sidelines while our people were brutalized so needlessly. At some point, we choose to accept police violence or we don't. Where will you stand? And this was, I believe she tweeted this summer of 2020 when there was a lot of protests and a lot of movement towards Black Lives Matter and just against police brutality. And I feel like it applied on such a universal level to so many aspects of activism, especially with this quote where it's like, stop reading. Like if you feel something stirring, in most cases, the sentiments that you feel stirring, that's the process of you being activated, not necessarily you wanting to be, but you nevertheless being activated because you can't, you know, turn away from injustice. So yeah, no, I just love that quote. Yeah. Also, if you don't take leadership, that is also dangerous. Like Percy, if he just didn't know he was a half-blood, it would just be a matter of time that they get him or the system gets him or whatever. So that's another thing I wanted to say. Like the alternative is also dangerous if you don't do anything. I think what's also interesting is in the chapter, you know, Percy is described as this quote-unquote troubled kid. We all know, so it's not really spoiling. We all know that he's a demigod. We eventually find that very soon. All these demigods, they have this issue before they realize that they're demigod that they're also considered these quote-unquote troubled kids. It's not not about that they're troubled kids is that they in like instinctively have this fight or flight reaction where they they fight in this first chapter when Grover is getting bullied I also want to go into some like character depths in this in in this podcast Grover is in my opinion like not a very <laughs> great at what he's supposed to be doing like I kind of love that though I, I love mean that yeah 
Yeah, but I'm also like, Grover, like, get yourself together. And, and I get it, like, in the books, like, there's parts of it that is focused on Grover's growth as, like, what he's meant to do. But I'm just like, Grover, like, you need to get yourself together. Like, come on, like, this is, like, the most basic thing that you can protect Percy. You need to protect him from Mrs. Dodds turning into this monster. But Percy is always the one that is protecting Grover from things. But wait, wait, Amina, you kind of just, like, disproved your own point. <laughs> you just said, like, this basic thing, and then you went on to describe something that does not sound basic. <laughs> wait, like, what I do you mean? Like- you said this basic thing and then you went on to describe the teacher who turned into a monster and I I just don't think that's basic. Kind of to the point about what you were saying about Grover developing and finding himself with Percy. I feel like that's the most accurate like portrayal of real life, even real life activism. Like there's no one who's ever, and this is not me trying to like come for you at all. I'm just saying. No, yeah. Like I get your point because it it, it gets frustrating at times, especially because when you think about it, even Percy needs to have at least one individual he can turn to for like that type of secure support. But then at the same time, like when you look at our real world, I don't think there's any activist out here who knows 100% what they're doing and who hasn't like made mistakes and developed as they're training others. And I think that's what like kind of makes activism so humane. Like we're all learning together. I still don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm, I'm still. I think still, I got straight to the point. I still feel, I've been doing this for 20 years. I still feel like I'm faking it until I make it. No, I, I definitely see your point there. Okay, yeah. I guess you kind of changed my mind on Grover but, a little no, bit. No, but I see not. what you're saying too. I mean, I'm like, why are you so incompetent, Grover? But like, I just want to give him a hug. Because also we find out later, like, Grover is, is like actually like, near late 20s. We know that he's done stuff like this before. That's when I'm just like, you have you have one responsibility. In a way, like, I don't hate Grover because I definitely do, like, sympathize with him. And he has other things that are, like, on the top of the list of his priorities. So I get it. But also I'm like, I was like, Grover... <laughs> Come on. The main point I was trying to get to was about how Percy, like, he's, you know, called this troubled kid, but he has this response where he's always going to fight for what matters. Percy knows that he is has an inkling to getting into trouble, getting into expulsion, but he's just like, my friend is getting bullied and I'm going to fight, like, stand up for him. Overall, like, I don't think there's ever a point where Percy doesn't stand up to the fight no matter how difficult it is and i think that's interesting that with that and the fact that he's like he and all these other demigods are considered these troubled kids i i feel like you know you don't want children to be going against the grain right you don't want them to like lash out against authority but they're like we see that something is wrong and we need to do something about it and that's what i really love especially because like in this book rick riordan is basically like telling kids that it's okay to not do everything that what society wants you to do which i feel like with activism like we were talking about it in the last episode and when we we're talking about like school shootings and stuff like how like schools they don't want you to leave during school walkouts and like attendance stuff sometimes like as an activist like you have to kind of do things that you're not supposed to be doing that society doesn't want you to be doing like missing school and so that's Civil disobedience we saw how that worked during the civil rights movement in curriculum like school curriculum that gives ballots perspectives on u.s history like i learned a ton about civil disobedience in school like that's part of the fabric of what makes america really great like knowing when laws and policies are unfair like just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right like slavery was legal can we just make that point over and over again like until people get it you know like slavery was legal I don't think anyone's going to say slavery was the right thing, right? And so I have all these other points that I want to share, but I feel like they come up in other chapters. So I'll just... Okay. Yeah. yeah if we... Do you want to go to the next chapter? Or obviously, oh, wait, we have we, more thoughts. Can we just add one more thing about the whole troubled 
kid point. Um, I was yeah. just going to say real quick too that it was revealed in this chapter. Like he is um dyslexic, and I felt like with that okay. part specifically when he was like, "I am a troubled kid." I just felt like that got into well it, for me it, like posed the question like to whose standards you know like you are a neurodivergent kid in a very ableist school I don't think like there is a school out there at least in this nation that isn't ableist in some way and so I I felt reminded of that because also I also loved the rep in this book and the series for neurodivergent people and I just felt like that was the first point he really started getting into the differences between neurodivergency and like neurotypical lifestyles and how they're perceived by others. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely worth mentioning that Rick Riordan wrote this book so that his son can feel represented. That's the core purpose that drove this book, to my understanding, which I believe that's another case for why we need to read this text as like an activist text, because like that is activism, right? Like you see a problem and you see someone that either you're hurting or someone who you love is hurting because they don't see themselves outside of themselves, that I feel like is so beautiful how that's established early on. You know, it doesn't feel like it's something that's like this added into there. Like he was he was able to integrate that really, really well into the, the lore of the books. Like it makes so much sense. And I think that is just like how when it's like someone reading it who is ADHD and or dyslexic, like they can really start to feel seen in in this series. Amina, not to put you on the spot, but like you have ADHD, right? Like... I feel like I'm undiagnosed ADHD, honestly, and I feel like it is my superpower. When I first read this, because like I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know I was ADHD, because yeah, I was like what, like seven. I got diagnosed when I was, I think, fifteen, and that I think also that's like one of the reasons why I feel like I resonated so, why I felt so like, you know, like when I was twelve, I had I made myself a Camp Halfblood shirt. Like I'm not gonna lie, you know what I mean? Like that's why I felt so like seen in this like community, I guess, and. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely like half demigod. Like, why not? <laughs> but sorry to my parents. But um, oh, my God, <laughs> no, I love that. The whole point about the shirt. Yeah, no, I wish I had the artistic talent. But no, that's so cool. It's really meaningful. Like when there's when they're showing like a disability as a superpower, like that's very, very meaningful for people who have these disabilities, especially when you're just a young kid. So in chapter two, the rest of the year goes by and people are still acting like Mrs. Dodds did not exist, except for the fact that Grover is not the best at acting he is not getting that tony word for it anytime soon so percy is definitely sure that something is going on he's also noting that the weather has been really acting up in crazy ways and all this combined is kind of making him super irritable and he gets himself expelled for being rude in class so he's studying for his final exams he gets really frustrated with his latin stuff so he decides to go to mr bruner for help while he's going to his office he notices something weird in the office and that he and Grover are talking about Percy and saying really weird things about him being in danger and also he notices that there is a weird shape in the office that's moving um someone that is standing up but also doesn't look human um but at his exam Mr. Bruner tells Percy that he is a quote-unquote special kid and he kind of takes this as a personal dig so the kids are going back to their homes when the school year ends and Percy's kind of jealous over all his classmates going to do rich kid things with their celebrity daddies while he's just, quote, a nobody from a family of nobodies, unquote. Percy and Grover are on the bus back to the city and Percy finally admits to Grover that he overheard them talking about him and that he doesn't believe him about Mrs. Dodds because he's a horrible liar and Grover gives him a weird looking business card to stay in contact with him. 
The bus suddenly breaks down and everyone has to get off in the middle of nowhere near this fruit stand. And Percy feels a very weird vibe from these three ancient ladies who are knitting a huge pair of socks. As one of the ladies cuts the ball of yarn while looking directly at Percy, Percy is wondering what kind of giant is in need of these socks, while Grover seems to be one pinch away from death. Grover spats some more cryptic nonsense, and Percy asks him if cutting the yarn means that someone is going to die, and Grover is silent. Also, um, I think it's important to note that the yarn they used is electric blue, and throughout the series, Percy has an overwhelming obsession with the color blue, but we, we get more into that in the second chapter. Or in the next chapter. But yeah, that's chapter two. I'm just like obsessed with like Percy and Grover's friendship. And in the first chapter, you already see a sense of Percy standing up for injustice. Like Percy from the get-go is just a model hero. That it like he is just like your archetypical activist, which I love. And it's really in you know, people would have heard the interview with Zena that we had, and I just see a lot of parallels between like Percy's story and Zena's story. Zena got involved in activism because she saw a someone in her community get killed needlessly, and also she had a lot of friends who were less privileged than she was and relying her on support. And so that's kind of what fueled her to be an activist. And I feel like in these first two chapters, Percy's really established as someone who is standing up for people who find it hard to stand up for themselves or yeah or are oppressed because they're weird or whatever and I just think that's that's something that I'm really taking away from the reading so far yeah and just to add on to that I think in chapter two we get a sense of where he gets some of that strength from because it's not easy you know you don't wake up every day ready to fight everyone's battles and then your own and then some you know what's great about this chapter though is specifically the part where he's talking about leaving Yancey Academy and he's like but I don't want to leave Yancey Academy with Mr. Brunner thinking I hadn't tried on that one exam that he's like referring to. And I just thought that was so like sweet because I don't know, it's like the effect of teachers, you know, like teachers, at least for me, have always been individuals that have believed in me, even when I couldn't believe in myself. And to have that type of support that's so unconditional is just so empowering in so many ways and I think for Percy specifically there are definitely times where he comes off as either like insecure or just struggling to really believe in himself and thus like step up for what step you know speak out for what he believes in and especially because when he doesn't even believe in himself but I think through these moments where he gets to interact with others especially teachers and like adults I don't know I think with every child growing up even though some may not like to admit it, we do look up to adults for a lot of our lives, whether that's our parents, whether that's teachers, like adults represent maturity and wisdom. And we, we want to be seen as mature or wise or whatever, to some extent by them. And so when he looks up to these individuals, and he gets that, especially when he doesn't get it from people like his stepfather, it really means something to him. And I think that's like the type of thing that helps him persevere, because no activist or person really can like continuously stand up for others and like not feel a burnout you know when we talk about this all the time at youth activism project um, and we really try to work with youth activists when they experience this because burnout is very real and when you're constantly surrounded by either tokenization of your advocacy or just straight up like disregard or opposition it's so hard to keep going and in this case with percy he's like constantly surrounded by people who villainize him as this troubled kid or his stepfather who just quite like senselessly um, verbally and physically abuses him he's just surrounded by all those negative sources and I feel like he gets the energy to fight for others when there's someone believing in him 
Mr. Bruner, he is thus far, like, besides his mom, like, is the only adult character in his life that is looking out for him. Everyone else just thinks he's some kind of delinquent. But, like, Mr. Bruner, I mean, he knows, like, Percy's real history. And so he knows that he's just, like, different. And But, like, that's the thing. It's, like, Mr. Bruner, like, he really sees um, this aspect of Percy where it's, like, he has that quality to him where he can, you know, speak against and, like, make a stand against what is the norm and I feel like that is like the problem in today's society where we see kids who aren't doing what we want kids to do like we want them to go to school we want them to like focus on their studies like blah 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 blah. but it's like there are some that are like we want to you know make a stand on this and it's like I think that's what like Percy kind of represents and like his relationship with Mr. Bruner Yeah, absolutely. Like, I feel like, you know, quote unquote, troubled kids, they're not troubled kids because there's something that's wrong with them. It's because there's something that's wrong with society. Yeah. Society, like, you know, you hear all these narratives about students um, and like disproportionate ways that black students and black boys in particular get disciplined in schools versus white students. And a lot of times it's because, you know, there's a a measure called ACEs, like adverse childhood experiences. And like a lot of times these children have score high on ACEs, which is, um, you know, which means that they have a lot of traumatic experiences. So like I definitely see Percy as someone in community with with those kinds of individuals because and kind of could be a rep. I mean, he obviously is like a white boy, so there's different types of solidarity to be had there. But I feel like, you know, even me, I felt I was a good student and I still felt oppressed by the school system because I wasn't as good as my peers. Yeah, and what we find in the next chapter, like Percy, he has like his mom is was basically a single mom for a little bit and then married this her stepdad and or his stepdad, sorry. Um and and his stepdad is like not the best person. And so he has this already like also troubled home life too. These kids who we see as quote unquote troubled or like delinquents or whatever it's like they have these other stuff going on in their life outside of school that is like kind of influencing the way that they act the way they perceive society and so that's why it's like really important to have teachers and other adults in people's lives like Mr. Bruner especially like especially in like in a culture where you're not like you don't know everything about what the what your student or like what that kid is going through at school and so it's like important to have those adult figures in your life that kind of see through all that and see like what kind of person that you are and like how your experiences how your background has shaped you into like a member of society yeah and also just to that last point about like teachers and making sure they see you for you and not just for whatever label society puts on you just specifically I feel like there's a specific need for them to also recognize that no kid is the same and that every kid's situation is unique and kind of going back to what Anika was saying about in terms of like real life situations like Percy is definitely not a representation of how black and brown boys are treated in the American public I mean not even just public like American education system period let alone the world although he is not a representation like there definitely are parallels that could be drawn between neurodivergency and the racial component. And then even when you combine and the class those, component like, oh, too. Yeah, class earlier. component as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you combine all three of those, that's a whole other student, like that's a whole other type of student. And it's just as important for teachers to not only acknowledge that troubled as a label is just plain out like wrong. <laughs> like it's just inaccurate in so many on so many levels. Um, and also just dehumanizing. But then it's also not like universal and it really is case by case 
one more thought that I had on this chapter. When we get to the part where they're at the fruit stand and these three ladies are knitting, like the knitting or whatever. Um, so these the three ladies, they're supposed to represent the fates who like in Greek mythology basically kind of dictate where your destiny is going. I think it's really important that obviously like the fates are kind of mapping out Percy's destiny in this one of the first chapters in the entire series and they cut the line like right when Percy's there. The fates, I feel like they're kind of representative of like two activists as this kind of like when you're when you're starting like a project or an initiative or you're trying to create momentum on something it's kind of that um like that feeling in the back of your head where you're like oh my god this is fruitless oh my god like there's so many things that you know like this probably like if you're trying to like pass something or like trying to find a solution something like we're not going to get this because of the fact that you know like society will prove prevent it from coming to fruition and so i think that like is already you know like percy like doesn't even know what journey he's starting on but he's like already kind of seeing that like like his momentum is is going to come come to the come come to an end at a certain point i think that's like really like scary and like something that for activists is like really real you know fighting for something but then also like struggling with knowing that like or like not knowing but like feeling that oh this is this might not even happen or like this like I'm fighting for nothing or like what's the point when like uh, when when we can't even like get any resolution to this that's what's so hard about this work my biggest advice for activists and I've definitely been in that I've I've honestly like I'm here you know and like and we're here we are in a supposed democracy I often argue it's not a democracy it really isn't actually and a plug for our second interview which is going to be our fourth episode it's with uh, Marshall Gans was a famous organizer. He was behind Obama's organizing strategy in 2008. I mean, he makes a really good point of actually the founders never intended the U.S. to be a democracy. Our constitution is based on the fact that the U.S. is a republic and has select representatives for the people. So, like, that's something important to, important to note. But I digress. Um, but yes, like, be so we are all like trying to be leaders, trying to be activists in a society that isn't fully a democracy it's really difficult but we just I don't know I think one thing is just remember remember the issues like a lot of times anger is enough like we see later on spoiler alert but we're going to talk about it it's in our first four chapters but in the fourth chapter like when the, whatever happens to Percy's mom and when we saw Percy get ang so angered by it right like he was like filled with rage that is I feel like that's probably what fueled Percy to fulfill his destiny as a half-blood like hold on to your anger be productive sometimes anger can be unproductive so i would say like to fight what amina was saying hold on to your anger get someone else riled up about things like the more we can just get people doing stuff you know we heard this in the conversation with Zena. she talked about how she had this council person who was giving you know she just wasn't responding to Zena's group about their issues and just thinking that they were making it up but they had allies Right. They had people who had some power. So keep trying to find your allies because you will find allies that have power and influence that can help you get past that hump of like, this is fruitless. Yeah. And just adding on to that, to the point specifically about anger, I think that's so valid. Um, and just even like relating it to my experiences. But at the same time, like going beyond my experiences, I would say I have definitely felt angry, especially as a black student in a lot of predominantly white academic settings. Um in fact, like that one quote by Baldwin, like about to be a black person in this country is to like 
be in a state of rage almost all the time. Of course, that's not the exact quote, but you feel free to search it up. But essentially, he was saying like it's to be in a state of rage all the time. And that is so very true. But then at the same time, I would caution with only holding on to the anger because partially anger can only take you so far. But Absolutely. then, yeah, because anger eats away at you. But then at the same time, as it's eating away at you, it's eating away at your humanity and the way you start to project on others can get really scary. I specifically say that to bring up what I think is another way to like counteract the potentially negative consequences of holding on to anger for advocacy. And that is community and love and actually the whole oh my god bell hook sorry she yes. like is uh, she's so amazing um i don't know if you R. guys R. have read her essay love as the i think practice of freedom yeah i think that's mm-hmm. the full title yeah. um yeah that essay went crazy like she called me out in so many ways i remember reading that and i was at the point in my advocacy where i was just consumed by anger like all the time and in that she made like the distinction between the black panther movement and the and mlk's movement and how there was and at like points in both movements there was either too much anger or um too much anger and not a lot of love and that was what was problematic and i think she said specifically that advocacy cannot be sustained without love because i am forgetting like the exact wording but something about like the lack of love posing the risk of turning you into the oppressor and like into the very thing you're trying to fight against um at least that's what I interpreted while I read that and I was like that's crazy because (laughs) it's so true um it's so unbelievably true and so I would also say as you hold on to anger also hold on to the love and the community and that could be the small things like I know for me racial equity and education equity in is a big thing at our our school and advocacy work we do there and Yes, sometimes they'll be like talking to teachers about messed up things that have happened in class, but that gets me angry. What helps me feel better is going to like a Black student union meeting and singing our favorite like songs together from like Aaliyah to um, Jasmine Sullivan to like Drake. Like it's so it's so fun and it's so energetic and it really just gets your head and your heart back into the right place for you to continue doing the advocacy work because anger will just it really will just eat away at you. I wanted to do another plug for the interview that we did with Marshall Gans because we talk about public narrative and you guys have heard me talk about public narrative to the point that, you know, you're like, shut up about it. But this is what I love about public narrative so much. So just a quick like overview of what it is and we go into that more in the interview. But public narrative is basically a leadership, we call it a leadership practice that is all about talking about your story, talking about the story of your community and getting people to like take action now. And it's all meant to bring up things like anger, but not just anger, but like to Opsi's point of like solidarity and hope and joy and all of that kind of stuff. Because the thing is, the thing that keeps people from doing stuff is are things like inertia, apathy, fear, self-doubt, and all of those things that Opsi just talked about is kind of what like when you stress that, that's that's what um, brings you out of it and reminds you that this is actually worth fighting for. So that was a great question, Amina. Honestly, like with the fates, it's not like it, it, it's really hardly ever brought up again in the rest of the books. Like, I really don't think he ever brings it up again. But I think that's kind of cool is the fates are presented to him like right before he starts this hero's journey and like before he even knows what he's fighting for he's already being told that like this is going to be cut short and like usually the fates like they dictate like when the journey is over right that is really annoying because it's like when we do talk about it 
it like translated to like activism. Don't expect that it's all going to go to waste. Have that belief that what you're fighting for is going to come to fruition. And that's why I think it also is kind of important that Percy doesn't actually mention it ever again because he just doesn't like he doesn't care. Back to like what Ops was saying, like reacting out of love. Percy loves his community that he has as at Camp Half-Blood. He is constantly fighting for it and I don't think he like I mean obviously he's he thinks about his mortality a lot because of the fact that his line of work is so um life or death. But I think he knows that like even if he does like somehow perish like his fight is still going to continue with his community. And so he's not actually like really worried about that. Who cares about what the fates have to say? Just fight for like what you think is right in the moment and like just have faith and have hope that like your idea and like your goals are just going to come to fruition. Yeah, just real quick on that note about the fates because I know we got to move on. Um, I really agree with your last point, Amina. Um, Like I've never really liked the concept of the fates in any mythology book that I've read just because... I especially in activism though because you are supposed to be writing your own story you're supposed to be changing your narrative you know helping your community and yourself in whatever way um, you write that your you own destiny help. literally that like oh my god every single time I read the word fates like anywhere the only thing I think of is like aside from all the activism I also specifically think of that one poem Evictus that's like I am the master of my fate I am the captain of my soul like specifically that line because the whole idea of fates is just so contradictory to that and I, I understand why some authors use it. Like they they present the concept of fates. So then once their character like goes beyond the fates, like it's like the big moral lesson is like, oh yeah, you no one decides you know who you are and no one can set your limits except you. I really do love that, and I love it when authors approach it like that. And I definitely think that was done with this series. I just if it's not approached like that, then I just really struggle to accept the idea of fates. And I would honestly advise people to consider other things and just their own you know autonomy beyond things like the fates so chapter three the bus is running and they get to the bus terminal where percy really ditches grover even though he promised grover that he was going to walk him to his mom's apartment but he was just ready to go see his mommy we get some background on sally jackson who from a young girl never really had anyone as her parents died when she was little and her emotionally distant uncle became her guardian who then got sick and had and she had to drop out of high school to take care of him until he died and he left her with nothing she gave up on her dream of becoming a novelist and now here she is and also by the way i have this like headcanon where it's actually like percy's mom writing all these books about percy's and his friends like tales it's like her like way of being a novelist and also like talking about her son's life and journey but that's just like my little headcanon um right isn't that like really cute I don't know. But anyway, Percy says the best thing that has ever happened to his mom is um, her meeting his dad. And he explicitly states that they never got married. And I think that's really woo. Like, in like a children's novel. I don't yeah, know. I thought the same thing. I was like, whoa. In 2005. Yeah. Like, that's when this was published. I was, I was like, okay. You're, you know, pretty progressive. So they never got married. Percy's mom describes him as some rich and important guy and that one day he went to sea and never came back. Also some foreshadowing for later that I'm like, Percy, come on, put two and two together. Anyways, I think pretty quickly after Percy was born, his mom married his stepdad, who he lovingly calls Smelly Gabe. And we see, we, sh- we soon see that he is pretty abusive to Percy's mom. So um, he gets home and Gabe is playing poker with his buddies. And the only greeting he gives 12-year-old Percy is asking him for money. Um, so Percy waits in his room, which reeks of Gabe. 
um, and for his mom. And she comes home and instantly brightens up his mood. So I think one of my favorite relationships in this book is between Percy and his mom. Uh, because Same. in this moment, yeah, in this, I, I, t- I pulled a quote from this moment because it was just so cute. So he says, um, my mother can make me feel good just by walking into the room, dot, dot, dot. When she looks at me, it's like she's saying all the good things about me, none of the bad. I just I just think that is so sweet. I'm just um, so happy for Percy to have, like, Mr. Brunner and his mom. Like, Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to leave it no, there. Same. Like, ugh. but she comes home, and she comes home with his favorite candy from the Grand Central Station candy shop that she works at, and they sit together while he talks about the school year, and she doesn't bring up his expulsion or anything up at all. And she surprises Percy with a three-day trip to Montauk, his favorite place, and the beach where his mom met his dad. The two of them leave later that evening, and they hang out on the beach, and Percy explains how they only ever eat blue food because it's his favorite color, and how Smelly Gabe thinks that it's stupid. So that's why they love it. Percy goes to sleep and he has his first prophetic like nightmare, which happens a lot in the series. Um, and then he sees an eagle and horse fighting on a beach. And right before the eagle makes its kill, he and his mom wake up and see that there's a hurricane in the middle of June happening on Montauk. And Grover is outside without his pants. But yeah, that's chapter three. I'm just really grateful for that recap because i read this chapter twice now and i still feel like when i was reading i'm like what is happening <laughs> there's just so much that's happening um and then also ugliano i just can't get over that i'm sorry ugliano i yeah. cannot get over it it makes me so mad even more than gabe being a trash character just that last name i think it's pronounced ugliano but it's <laughs> yeah hey Ugly. we'll take ugliano we'll take that we'll take it you know i was just gonna say um one like part that specifically stood out to me from this chapter was when Percy got back and Gabe was like, your report card came, brain boy. I wouldn't act so snooty. I just, just specifically like the brain boy part, I felt like this just goes back to, it, it really connects with our previous conversations about like really being careful with, and not, not just careful, but like really disregarding labels that society would place on students because the moment he said brain boy, I was like, and that is why, you know, report cards really should not be something that's so, so like prioritized in a student's life because a tablet kids from the like gods, have, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, like it's just like kids have, some kids may have individuals in their life who are going around calling them things like brain boy. And that's just like, how do you expect anyone to succeed when you're surrounded by that? Like you all, it's inevitable that you will be the product of your environment Unless, like, you know, it's, like, a different situation in which you're, like, stepping beyond that to, like, find your identity. But if it's not, and if it's, like, you being surrounded by abuse, like, of course you're going to struggle to believe in yourself when you're being surrounded by people who don't believe in you. So I just felt like that that one quote in and of itself just really went to show how just report cards really just pissed me off. I don't know, but... (laughs) Maybe I'm just saying, maybe I'm biased as like a current No, I think we're all biased student. here. But if you, listener, don't agree with us and think report cards are meaningful, drop us a line and we can talk about it. But yeah, no, I think- Yeah, and it's it's not like we're saying there shouldn't be a measurement of a student's performance because no, measure it and make sure the student is always improving. Yes, we love that. But just report cards and even like- the way they are prioritized in conversations about students and like it's never discussing a student's mental health 
or I mean, well, not never, there's definitely been a shift in recent years. But like, in a lot of school environments, it's so competitive that report cards are the first thing that come up. And even in like the college admissions process, not to say that colleges do that, but more so to say that kids worry about that because we hear it from everyone around us. Um, it just sucks. It really sucks, especially for kids who who aren't even given like the resources to be able to reflect their true academic performance through a report card. Yeah, I have like a lot of thoughts on that, but I'm, I'm going to try to like not really go into it because I can really like talk random out of like hours. But uh, especially coming out of my undergraduate career, like I just finished col- college and I'm not planning on going to grad school anytime soon. Like, oh, thank you. Um, Barely. I barely went through. Like, that's the thing. It's like I barely got through school on it, like all of school, because at a certain point, especially like in the area that we grew up in, it's so toxic. It is so insanely toxic. Hyper competitive, like uh, yeah. Like I literally had. I remember my style, really. Like quick anecdote. Like I remember my my dream school was University of Southern California, and when we had like the admissions counselor come to our school and like have a little meeting, she literally told us USC like specifically like with our school and like with other schools in the area like they don't compare you to like other students like when they're like admitting students they don't compare you to other students in the country they compare you to other kids like in your classroom and I like talked to her like this is my GPA like this is my SAT score blah 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 blah. and she was like yeah you're probably not gonna get in just because like she's like you probably would get in like if you were from a different part of the country but you're not gonna get in because you grew up in Montgomery County Maryland and you went to this high school and I was like that's so scary and it's like it's so horrible especially because like I like I mean not to get like really dark about it but like I've at my high school like we've had a lot of kids like going through a lot of mental health issues and a lot of people that have like struggled really 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 hard with this like what's the word pressure the school pressure to do well and I just like and at the end of the day it's like who cares like what your GPA is or like what your like SAT score your ACT score like it's like it doesn't matter at the end of the day it's like it just matters like what you can do like and that's just like how I felt like going like from high school and on I was like I don't care about my grades at all because like I don't think it's a measure of my intelligence or my capabilities at all really or at least the way that the American academic system like kind of monitors it so I and it's like especially like with Percy like Percy like saves the world Percy like it's like he's like saving the world like every book who cares if he like doesn't pass math like he's not gonna be doing math for like the rest of his life you know what I mean like he's gonna be a hero and it's like I don't know I feel like this topic that we just touched on I kind of want to share one more anecdote about it and then we can move on to the next chapter but I just feel like so many people are probably listening um hopefully a lot of students you probably relate to what we were just talking about so I also as someone who like is way out of the like high school college system like for you all are like coming into it here is some advice like to Amina's point you are so much more than your letter grade. Like there is a lot more that you can showcase about yourself to colleges that isn't just about GPA and test scores. Like I'll just share something really, really quick. So I, um, I remember in like, like 11th or 12th grade or something, I failed my calculus final. And I remember when I saw my grade, I started bawling in the hallway. Like I really thought my life, I was so ashamed, especially because I went to this like science magnet program, which was full of kids who were like constantly competing. My self-worth was so down in that moment. 
And now I look back on it and it makes me laugh because that had no effect on my future trajectory. Like, I'm going to flex right now because I can. I went to Harvard for grad school. Like, I'm sorry. And I felt like I say that because in high school, I felt like I wasn't deserving of a school like Harvard. Let me tell you this to people. Like, there are other ways. Again, I'm going to repeat this. There are other ways other than GPA and test scores, like activism, for example, um, that you can really make your mark and showcase that you're a worthy student for really awesome universities. This is my advice to people. Let go of this idea of dream schools. Wherever school you end up, if you are someone who is uh, dedicated to a cause or dedicated to something that you're passionate about, if you have that stirring drive in you that we were talking about earlier, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. You don't need to go to Ivy Leagues or whatever to do an amazing thing and like probably you're probably gonna end up for at an ivy league if that's really what you want that's what happened to me like i didn't worry about that for undergrad and that's where i ended up so please 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 join the youth activism project we can help you get into college in another way <laughs> like that's my plug but just above all like do not tie your identity to grades okay yeah, yeah. i love what has been said anika but just the only caveat being that please don't be pursuing activism as a performative activist. We, oh, yes, you know, definitely. Issues are real issues, real people, real lives at risk. Do not be doing it to put it on your college transcript because these issues are far more important than any college acceptance or rejection ever will be. Um, and Youth Activism Project, just to tweak that language a bit, <laughs> we help build youth activists who and like help them be able to showcase their desire to become leaders as they apply to colleges, if that's the career path they want, if they want to go into community organizing, into politics, into public policy, all of that, we are not building performative activists who are just trying to, you know, use advocacy as like a backdoor into college. No, I absolutely agree with Opsi. There is no replacement for actual passion for activism. Like we at YAP have a very strong stance against performative activism. I just share that because like, activism was something that was so important in my life and it was also able to get me into college that was just the point that I was trying to make all right so my chapter four summary is actually really quick even though a lot really happens in this chapter but but yeah Grover shows up and the three of them are in Gabe's car and they're carrying on the road uh Percy finds that Grover is a freaking satyr and so he's half man half goat he basically was supposed to be his watcher in the last year and was there at yancey to keep an eye on him and also keep him safe um because percy is starting to attract all these monsters as we learn at around 12 that's when demigods are i guess i don't know releasing like pheromones or something i don't know um and so the the car gets struck by lightning grover passes out he becomes a little useless once more um but <laughs> he um like they but they're getting really really close to their destination percy's mom is like percy you get out of the car um and because they're being chased by uh some monsters and specifically the minotaur which is a half man half bull that was created by um king king minos i think for the for the labyrinth um and so they're being chased by this huge monster percy's a freaking freaking out um he doesn't know how like what he's gonna do and uh the i think it was the fates that grabbed percy's mom and like kind of disappeared with her 
So Percy's mom is like, who knows where? And so he's really angry. You know, this is his beloved mom. Like we just saw like how close the relationship is. And he fights this Minotaur and defeats the Minotaur, which as we learn like pretty soon that this was an incredible feat for him who he has no weapons on him at all. He just single-handedly, barehandedly just kills this um, great mythological monster. Um, And then he just passes out. Which, you know, well-deserved. Um, but yeah, that's that's basically the fourth chapter. I mean, he basically passes out and then there's something pretty important happens right after. Oh, yeah. Um, he, he wakes up somewhere and um, he looks up and we see a major character pulling up and it's this blonde girl with princess like hair and um and she's just like saying like yeah like he has to be the one and um there's another man a mysterious man and he's just like yeah like let's let's deal with this but yeah that's i mean that's basically it just quick note about that whole thing um no he's the one i don't know i've always felt that and I, i heard it in like you know other stories like harry potter um I think one point in Divergent, but essentially all of those YA, like, coming-of-age fantasy or dystopian novels, and I just feel like it's the most, like, ostracizing thing to hear as um, anyone going into any sort of, like, justice work to have all of that pressure on you. and A hundred percent. Right? Like, I just, I, I just think... I just think there needs to be more of an emphasis on community because aside from, you know the very real fact that there's power in numbers there's also the simple fact that humans like individually can't like solve you know world crises by themselves like that's just impossible um but then also i did want to bring up another point a little earlier than that as um as there as grover his mom and percy i mean grover percy and his mom um percy's mom as they're like starting to you know like go up the hill and they're like panicking and all of that and percy like he feels really lost and like helpless because he he doesn't quite understand what's going on at that point and there's a specific quote that really got to me um i got mad um then mad at my mother at grover the goat (laughs) at the thing with horns that was lumbering toward us and then it goes on but i just thought i don't know that hits so much because especially with our discussion about um school shootings and the January 6th insurrection, just like, and even our current, like, well, not current, but like the conversation in this specific episode today about um, anger. And I felt like it all connected so perfectly because the anger that you feel with powerlessness and injustice is, it's so consuming and not just like consuming in the way that it eats at you as you hold on to it, but like you sometimes struggle to see past it. Like it consumes you and your mental health. And I feel like we've talked about this. We've slightly touched on this before, like to the Amina's whole point about like, how do you keep going when it seems so fruitless and you feel so hopeless? This like quote from Percy from the series perfectly captures it because you just get so angry and so caught up in it. And especially when you're in the middle of, you know, whatever in the heat of the moment, whatever is happening in this case, them like, Oh, oops, sorry. Them, like, get, trying to run away from this um, monster. Like, it just, 
it's so devastating and i i was like wow you really captured that in like a ya fantasy novel like that that is so funny to me like it's always the most like i i don't know if you guys have seen like um occasional memes of like really nebulous profound things being said in like cartoons and it's just so like random like why is it being said in a cartoon like i felt that way with this not to say that this series is a cartoon but just to say that it deals with a lot of heavy complex topics and i feel like books like this and even cartoons sometimes don't get the same level of recognition as you see the more um like classical pieces of literature get yeah so I have a question for you. I think um, the one thing that's standing out for me in this chapter is this question of, like, was Percy's mom and Grover really doing him a service by keeping this information from him? Like, were they really protecting him? In the books, like, they explain how the more they know about their true nature, like, the more they are, like, susceptible to being in danger, which I feel like is kind of a cop-out. Like, I don't think that's necessarily the truth. Like, I don't think ignorance is always the best way to, like, handle things, especially, like, when you're destined to live a life full of danger. And so, like, I mean, it goes to, like, especially, like, when I think about, um, like, certain marginalized communities and how, like, their identities can bring them, like, their susceptible to danger just because of the way our society functions. Like, I don't think that is something that you should... Um, hide from like a child from a young age like I feel like that's something that they must learn from a young age and know like the complexities of like the 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 side of they're growing up in and how like just the sheer fact of just who they are like their genetic makeup or like their core like identity is like will make them you know uh, in danger and from society and yeah just to add on there I although I can't like fully answer the question I was reminded just as you were speaking Amina I was reminded of the other side to ignorance the whole idea of ignorance being bliss and I know that is a very controversial statement but I bring it up because something that definitely changed my mind over the course of the pandemic and specifically the summer of 2020 was when people were like actually and it relates to this because the whole part of like, is the mission of truth a disservice to people? There were some people who chose to emit the truth from their lives. And I specifically refer to people who decided to stop listening to the news for like a week or so or stop like engaging with social media because they were getting overwhelmed and like doom scrolling was a big thing. And this could even be applied to like not watching, not solely watching like black trauma movies and stuff like that. Like uh, the times where you just can't handle the truth and you need to step back from it. Um, I definitely agree with everything you're saying, but then I also, I remember that summer was really like revolutionary for me because I didn't even think about it like that. I also approached it with, no, we always have to be fighting. We always have to be like, you know, on that grind and constantly, like I'm a news junkie. Like I was always like, we always have to be educated. We always have to know, even if it's painful, but then I heard that side of it and I was like dumbfounded and silent for a little bit, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's there are any easy answers, right? Because at least in this case, I could see both sides. And I think it is a realistic thing like parents and teachers have to deal with, right? Like we see debates on is talking about like gender and sexuality in elementary school, like early elementary school, is that necessary? And like, there are some arguments like, why do we need to sexualize children? Like, I think, for example, um, you know, 
Like, yeah, and I, I get that. Like, there are some children who just, they're not even thinking about these things, right? And, like, I totally sympathize with this notion of let kids be kids. But then there are other kids who, they have crushes at an early age. And, you know, and and we need to hold space for those children as well. So it's there's no easy answer. And that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up. All right, so um, I think like let's close this out by maybe each of us sharing what's our biggest takeaway. Sure. Um, I mean, I personally think this is one of the best like introductions to a hero. I just like, uh, maybe because I'm just like, I just love Percy Jackson. Like, it's, I'm really partial to it. But like, I really feel like they, one, it was quick. Like, it, you know, we, we really got into action. Like this whole read took like maybe like, 20 30 minutes so it's just like it's really quick into like how we get into the world of Percy Jackson and how like from the first like few pages he starts getting into this action and get gets his calling right like he gets his calling to like fight in like fight for something and also like who he's meant to be I feel like uh, up until this point like he was kind of lost and like I mean, of course, any 12-year-old is going to be lost. But, like, you know, he starts getting a clear picture on what what his destiny is, like, what he's meant to be doing. That is so profound. <laughs> All I was going to say was that the only key takeaway – well, not only, but, like, the main key takeaway that I got was teachers really are the backbone of society. And I still think about that video of – Adele singing and then her English teacher like her being surprised by her English teacher from like all those years ago coming up because that had me like sobbing and English teachers are like amazing on so many levels um but teachers period um and yeah I'm sorry that's still my takeaway (laughs) my biggest takeaway is just rooting this all in love and community like that was such a really good point Opsy and I feel like from the get-go we just get such a to Amina's point too like Uh, like Percy is such a great hero and you get that sense from these first couple of chapters his love for Grover and his mom and how you could really see that fueling his choices as a hero it's just like I'm gonna continue following that myself thank you guys so much for listening to the unclaimed we hope you enjoyed this episode if you liked what you heard make sure to tell your friends and give us a follow on Instagram Twitter and TikTok at the unclaimed pod to stay up to date on when we release episodes and additional content Next week, we'll be releasing another interview episode with Anika and Marshall Gantz, the Rita E. Hauser Senior Lecturer in Leadership, Organizing, and Civil Society at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and was fundamental to Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. In the meantime, make sure you catch up on chapters 5 through 8 of The Lightning Thief, as we'll be discussing that the following week. Thank you. Bye.